0: Hello, everyone. My name is Anna Silsobag, and this is Something About Everything. With me here today is Anna Henderson. Anna is a senior analyst at the Happiness Research Institute. She has 20 years of work experience within the fields of academia, consultancy, and journalism. To give you more context, the Happiness Research Institute researches happiness and its causes. The Institute aims to inform decision makers of the causes and effects of human happiness, and it also aims to make well-being a part of the public policy debate and improve the quality of life for citizens across the world. Thank you so much for taking the time, Anna.
1: That's a pleasure, and thanks for the uh, very good resume. You summed it up very well, what we do.
0: (laughs) That's perfect. To start off, can you tell me more about what you do?
1: Yeah, what we do at the Happiness Research Institute is, as you say, we focus on uh, quality of life, basically. What makes people happier in general, mostly at the sort of statistical level, we look at um, how populations fare, um, both in a comparative study, but also between nations, but also what makes some groups of people within society more happy than others.
0: Mm. I think that's what got me really interested in talking to the Happiness Research Institute because when I, or I think the majority of population, when they think of happiness, they usually think of it on the individual basis and I only think about the emotional or affective side of it. But after reading some of the Happiness Research Institute's publications, I realized that there is more to happiness than just the short-term emotions we feel on a daily basis and and that it should be, in fact, a part of public policy.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more.
0: So what is your definition of happiness?
1: Well, as you were onto yourself, there are several definitions of happiness. And one is the effect if you talk about the feeling of happiness here and now. And that's one way of measuring happiness. And if you do that in a longitudinal study, it's really interesting to see because it sort of sums up how happy is a nation if we're talking about a whole nation over a longer period of time with the fluctuations that might come from getting a divorce or just having a bad day or whatever? Mm. Um, there's also a way of measuring where you measure um, what we call the eudaimonic happiness, which is about having a sense of purpose in life. And that comes from different things. It comes from, well, it varies from person to person, but some of the things it, it, it usually comes from is, is work life. It also comes from having children or having someone that you take care of and someone you're close to. And then finally, there's, there's the third way of measuring happiness and defining happiness, which is the one we work with mostly at the Happiness Research Institute, This uh, definition of happiness is about life satisfaction. This is about how you rate your life overall, taking into consideration both the worst possible life you could have and the best possible life you could have. So this is what we call the evaluative or the cognitive measure of happiness. And this is is the measure uh, that they use in the World Happiness Report that just came out last week. They use what they call the Cantrell Ladder. Um, where people score from zero to ten, and this is where the Nordic countries always come up, um, top ten, and most of them top three or top five.
0: Mm. So that's really interesting. The World Happiness Report usually has, like you said, the Nordic countries on top because the main dimension that they focus on when analyzing happiness is the cognitive dimension. But there are other reports that focus on the affective dimension, which is uh, short-term emotions that people feel on a daily basis. And those actually, uh, very ironically, compared to the World Happiness Report, usually have poorer countries on top. They usually have Latin American countries like Colombia, El Salvador. Can you elaborate more on the difference between the cognitive and affective when it comes to like what kind of questions do you ask in a survey that differentiates between the cognitive dimension and the affective dimension?
1: Yeah, definitely. And actually, you call it ironic, but it's it actually makes completely sense um, when you measure the the life satisfaction the cognitive or evaluative measure of happiness um the question or we ask people and this is what they use in the happiness um world happiness report as well the cantral ladder question which is something along the lines of on the scale from zero to ten where do you feel you stand at the current time in your life, where zero is the worst possible life you can imagine, and 10 is the best possible life you can imagine? In this measure, when you ask people this kind of question, they can think of anything. It's a completely subjective measure, but it doesn't make it less valid, because we as, as individuals are the only people who can determine how happy we are. So when I consider personally... What is the worst possible life? What would be a zero for me? I'd probably think of life as a Syrian mum where my husband's died, uh, my two eldest sons were killed, and I'm the sole provider of my three youngest sons and we, or daughters, and we are fleeing. That's probably the worst possible life I can imagine. And then I have a, a perception of the best possible life as well. This might differ from person to person, but it's my subjective idea about where do I stand and in this measure in the evaluative life satisfaction measure the Nordic countries come out top because when we take all things together and add add our lives up and consider how are our lives we might not feel happy or joyful right now but we do feel that we are living in welfare states we've got economic support we've got you know, we've we've got a stable base. We've got freedom. We've got safety. We don't have much corruption or hardly any. We have free healthcare. We have free schools. This gives us an enormous freedom. We we have a, a a good economy, and all of these things I've just mentioned are drivers of happiness in in the life evaluation kind of measure. So if I am to compare with the effective measure, and why did the Latin American countries score higher? Well, it's because the effective measure is about how joyful do you feel? And the question that is usually asked in this sense, it could be done in different ways, but the question that's usually asked is about, I think they ask you about yesterday, because obviously today hasn't really happened yet. So they ask, how much did you laugh yesterday? How often did you feel joyful? And generally, how was your day? And that can differ completely from country to country so if you'd ask a Finnish person now the Finns are top of the rankings of the life satisfaction have been for two years Finns might not come across as very joyful people they don't smile a lot or maybe they joke but they have a dry sense of humor anyway (laughs) so they might like Danes be very satisfied with their life when they do the evaluation but they might not come across as sort of happy here and now, even though they might be so, but they don't come across. Whereas the Latin American countries, well, when they stop thinking about corruption, when they stop thinking about the lack of wealth or the lack of safety and just think about how happy are they here and now, they're very good at enjoying life. They're very good at appreciating what they have. Um, and I think this is why it makes complete sense that there's a difference between which countries come out top or which regions, actually. I think one country that's especially interesting is Costa Rica, because Costa Rica comes out top in both kind of rankings. Um, in the World Happiness Report, they actually this time they added an effective measure. And Costa Rica came out number four in the effective measure, but they came out number 12 in the life satisfaction as well. So they are, they're just good at both, which is amazing.
0: That's amazing. I love your examples because they really put things in perspective. And just to add on to that, I have a quote here from John Halliwell. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he's the co-editor of the World Happiness Report. He's also an advisor for the Happiness Research Institute. And his quote is that, Broadly speaking, Denmark ranks highly in all factors that support happiness. So that's basically what you said. You have a welfare system. You have the wealth. You have things that set you up for happiness. Now, the day-to-day, that's re- completely up to the individual. But on a macro scale, uh, these countries, the Nordic countries and Canada as well, Canada, Canada I think, ranked seven this year. And it basically Canada
1: was nine this year.
0: Oh, nine, nine. Oh, okay. Yeah, I messed up the numbers. Uh, So the whole idea is that some countries or some societies set you up for that day-to-day happiness. Yeah. So why is happiness so important for a country?
1: Well, happiness is important because it's about quality of life for in our studies and for us. And income, for example, is a means to happiness. It's not a goal in itself because income in itself doesn't bring happiness. Well, it does to a certain level. If you're poor, of course, income is a hugely relevant factor. But these material goods that we have are less important the richer we get. So in countries like Canada or Denmark or Switzerland or the US, where we are relatively rich, especially if we measure in GDP per capita, we find that as early as in the 60s, and now I'm thinking in particular of a study from the US, we find that happiness, that the happiness curve actually flattens in the 1960s. The economy is booming, and since then the economy has just gone up. I know we had a financial crisis, but right now it's the same situation. The economy is going up, but actually the, the happiness is slightly dropping now. And this means that there's a certain level to which Economy has an effect and wealth has an effect on happiness. But then at some point, it doesn't matter anymore. Other factors become much more relevant. And what is relevant and and, and what is the crisis in the States right now, in the U.S., is that there's a social crisis. There's a lack of social support. People simply don't feel that they have someone they can rely on, not even one person they can rely on in times of need. And they're worrying about lots of different things. This is one of the explanations that the the U.S. keep falling in the rankings of life satisfaction. But it's also an explanation to why countries um, in general, in in the global happiness, if we add it up and weigh it country by country, um, we find out the global happiness is falling as well. But I think what is really interesting is that income is relevant um, up to a certain point. And then we have to start looking at other factors. And one of the most important factors, as I said, was social support. Do you feel lonely or not? And it's mental health in general.
0: Yeah, I think loneliness is actually becoming a big problem. I don't know if you heard about this, but in early 2018, the UK appointed its first minister of loneliness. And they showed a study that they had 14% of the population in the UK was reported to be feeling alone. And similar stats appeared in the US. So I, I really understand what you're saying when it comes to the Fact that people are feeling more lonely, even though we're thriving economically, we're not reaching, we're not holding up to that when it comes to happiness.
1: Exactly. So, so to answer your question, why focus on happiness? Well, because it's not the only goal. I mean, there's there's ways of defining other goals in life, such as pride or doing well at your workplace or whatever. That might also be part of being happy, but. But definitely happiness or quality of life um, to us is is becoming much more relevant to look at what what constitutes that. What are the elements that make people ha- unhappy um, rather than just looking at how well are we doing economically?
0: Yeah, so that actually ties into my next point. I really want to break down the components or the reasons for happiness and then there was a publication by the happiness research institute that laid out eight reasons for happiness Uh, can you elaborate or explain them
1: quickly yeah um, the ones that i have sort of on the top of my mind are the six what we call the six drivers of happiness which are indeed i mean income as in gdp per capita it's also freedom it's absence of corruption, it's generosity, and it's health or healthy life expectancy. And then it's about your social support or your social network, who you have around you you can trust. Apart from these six drivers, what we find is that if you dive into the driver of, of he- a healthy life, we find that mental health is very important in the richer countries, becomes more and more important. So the people who uh, who are least happy are the people who, who have mental health issues. Um, we also find that trust is a main driver of happiness, the trust between people, and this is one of the reasons why the Nordic countries do really well. Trust comes, of course, also out of having freedom, not, I mean, living in democracies, um, so obviously not being censured, having the freedom to, to choose what we want to do, it, it's all sort of correlated. But what we know from the latest research is that the most important factors that drive our life satisfaction, our happiness, are the healthy life expectancy, our social network, and actually income or GDP per capita. These are the three most important drivers
0: Uh, Since you just explained it, I can see the correlation as to why the U.S. or other uh, countries all over the world are suffering, because corruption now has become kind of a trend or political corruption or the the trust and the civil societies are actually breaking down. There is so much divisiveness all over the world. So I can see why, even though we're thriving economically, we're coming up with many technological solutions all over the world. Happiness is dropping in general.
1: And I think trust is is one of the main reasons as well in the US that the more inequality, this is what we find as well, the more inequality in society, the larger the gap between the happy And the less happy is also a question about the gap, the social gap and the economic gap between people. And this also creates a lack of community feeling, a lack of trust, a lack of social support. And that brings unhappiness, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So... I want to really focus on a point that you brought up multiple times, which is income. So in one of the publications, it was, and I'm quoting here, on a global level, income is the factor that best explains the difference between happy and unhappy populations. And I, wanna answer, I want you actually to answer the ultimate question. Can money buy happiness?
1: The question has two answers. The first answer is yes. Money can buy happiness. In countries that are poor. The second and just as important answer is no or actually to some extent because at some point the happiness curve just flattens out. This means that when you have a certain level of wealth, happiness doesn't follow the curve of, of growth, economic growth. Happiness just flattens out. So at some point the economy or your income or the GDP per capita becomes less relevant for raising happiness. It's still very important to have wealth, to be able to have the institutions, to be able to have the health systems, universities we have and all of these things. I mean, good infrastructure, all of these things, of course, wealth is still important. But if you look at how much can you raise happiness in countries that are already wealthy, it takes an enormous amount of money per little percentage of happiness you raise. So here you have to look at something completely different. But to go back to my first answer, in poor countries, yes, income is extremely important.
0: Yeah, that actually really makes sense because uh, as the report stated that unhappiness can only be avoided if you're in the top 10% of incomes in the country but the difference between the lowest incomes in the country and the median wasn't that big when it came to suffering and struggling. So money does affect uh, the poor more than it does affect the uh, much more rich countries.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So I want to switch gears here and talk about the global phenomena of social media. Is it making us more or less happy?
1: Yeah, this is a good question because it's a question about causality. That until now, we can't really answer. We're really looking into this at the moment. But, but let, let me try to give you a straight answer, because it's a question about causality. Does social media make you unhappy or do unhappy people use social media? Right now, nobody actually knows or nobody, as far as we know, actually knows the answer to that question. But right now, we're working on a study for the Nordic Council of Ministers where we're actually looking into exactly this causality. So in June, I'll be much wiser about this. <laughs> but I'm afraid <laughs> okay. now that even our own study doesn't actually answer properly the question about causality.
0: Mm. So uh, there is a very strong quote in your uh, Facebook study I think it was published in 2015 and it says social media is a nonstop great news channel, a constant flow of edited lives, which distorts our perception of reality. The fact that people are constantly on social media and they're seeing these distorted, happy lives of other people, it's kind of making it harder for you to live your reala- realistic life, which isn't as happy as it seems. Hmm. And I think the World Happiness Report uh, had this uh, study. It highlighted the study of adolescents in the United States where they showed that Uh, Between 1991 and 2011, there was a rise in happiness in uh, adolescents, and that that rise suddenly started to decline after 2012. And the conclusion of the report was that a large amount of time spent by adolescents was on electronic devices, and that prevented them from doing three main activities, which include sleep in-person social interactions, and even attending religious activities. Uh, so they attributed social media to uh, that isolation that's preventing you from doing the regular activities that you usually do. And they are correlating that to the decrease in happiness.
1: Mm. I think definitely there's, I mean, and this is exactly what we're looking into, right, more in more detail, because actually the uh, scientific knowledge about this is, is still, uh, slightly questionable. <laughs> what we do know is that loneliness creates unhappiness. So what we are looking at is actually, is loneliness correlated with, um, use of social media? But again, it's about causality. Do lonely people use social media? Or does it go the other way around? And I was just asking my colleagues the other day who were looking at the data that we're collecting right now in a in a big Facebook survey. Well, a big survey of, of, of the use of Facebook and LinkedIn and other social media. I was just asking them the other day, the question that you are asking about does social media prevent you or the time spent behind a a screen prevent you from taking part in social activities that make you less lonely? And they said, well, in fact, what we find is you can also be lonely while doing social activities. You can be lonely playing a football match if you're not really in tune with your mates. You can be lonely at a big party. So it's not necessarily about the number of people you You spend time with all the the, the amount of time you spend with people. Of course, there is some link because if you spend no time with other people, you you will become lonely. But, But what we're looking into now is also what is the qualitative side of spending time with people? Because we know loneliness is so important to happiness. So I think this is what we need to dive much more into. And I'm sorry to say that I can't give you the results yet because we don't have them. But in June, I will be wiser.
0: Okay, I'll talk to you then.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to switch gears and turn to a completely different topic, which is religion. Do you think religion plays a role in happiness?
1: This is also a really interesting question. We did a study for the Nordic Council of mm-hmm. Ministers last year where this was one of the things that we analyzed in a regression analysis, um, which is a, a quantitative analysis where we can correlate and we can hold. Um, And we can correlate different factors. And what we find is that, yes, extremely religious people are happier. But by extremely religious people, I mean people who are very firm believers who go to church or to the mosque or the synagogue or wherever they go very often and practice this religion on a daily basis and very actively, whereas the majority of people who are moderately religious, we can't see any uh, correlation with happiness in them.
0: Mm. So... Karl Marx, I'm sure you know who Karl Marx is. He says, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world and the soul of the soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Do you think that's why religion leads to happiness or extremely religious people are more happy? Is it because religion somehow numbs the pain of life or society?
1: (laughs) I think... um... I think Marx was not particularly, I mean, he was very one-sided. I think he had a point at the time he was writing at, and I think he has a point um, when people become fanatic and start just following a religious mindlessly. But what we find is that religious people, people who are very religious, also have a strong sense of meaning with their life. They also quite often have a strong sense or feeling of community with other people. So we're kind of back to loneliness, but we're also talking about having a meaning with life. And that is important to happiness.
0: Yeah, when I was uh, studying the three dimensions of happiness, the eudaimonic, uh, cognitive and affective, the eudaimonic dimension, which focuses on meaning and purpose, I saw that religion with possibly be the only or like the most possible way to get that kind of happiness because it really needs deep philosophical and existential questions to be answered and empirical science cannot answer these questions i feel like religion is the the only entity that can really dive deep and answer those questions for people that follow them
1: I think for some people, and, and definitely for people who follow them, but as I said uh, earlier on in the interview, what is also very important for the eudaimonic kind of happiness, for the sense of purpose, is also having a family, having people to take care of. Once you have children, that actually creates a huge difference in meaning with your life. It might be tough, and you might actually become slightly less happy because you're tired, and you know, life is just slightly tougher with with someone else around that you have to take care of 24 7, but it's, it's still what gives you meaning with life. And, and also if you have someone else to take care of a husband or a spouse, if you have love in your life, um, and people that you care for. Um, and also, um, having a meaningful work life is very important to many people. So I'd say religion is not the only factor. It could be one and definitely for some people.
0: Yeah, I found that really interesting when you pointed it out in the beginning and then again now, because I was listening to this other podcast and they were trying to use science to analyze why people get children, (laughs) because it's an economic burden, it's a mental burden. And I think you basically summed up why people do that, why people live in families, why people bear that responsibility. It is because it's one of the major aspects that can lead to you Achieving that eudaimonic uh, happiness.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because we saw um, not long ago in a German study that um, people who had children had a drop in happiness in life satisfaction. And that kind of seemed odd. But the thing is, you might feel that life is kind of tough once you have kids. But what was not measured was how would you feel if you didn't have kids? How unhappy or happy would you then feel? And I think that's incredibly important to consider. But if you don't have children, and especially if you want children, but if you don't have them, can you still lead a meaningful life? Can you still become happy year after year after year? Yes, definitely. Some people can. But for most of us, it's just um, maybe it's a biological or psychological drive, but it's a drive we have within us. And we we would probably be unhappy if we didn't have kids. So I think sometimes you also need to look at what you can't measure or what you didn't measure.
0: Yeah, that's a a really interesting perspective. So at the Happiness Research Institute, you do lots of work with government. You do consulting work for governments and other institutions. So what are actions that you would label as stop actions for governments to take to make their people more happy?
1: Well, generally, I'd say that focusing on the people who are the least happy is the first thing you need to do. And this This is especially interesting because we see that what makes the Nordic countries have a high average of of life satisfaction and happiness is that we are quite good at at raising the bottom of society. That means we don't have people who score very low because we have a a fairly close spread in, in happiness. So societies that are very unequal, what is really necessary is to look at the bottom and try to raise the bottom and decide what what goes on down there. And then you could ask me, well, what should they then do to these people? Well, economy. Yes. How well are they doing? Freedom. Freedom is is about choosing what you can in life. It's both about the freedom of, of safety that you can walk in the streets. It's the freedom to choose what you want to do with your life who you what you want to work with whether you can take a degree if you want a degree or you or you don't take that degree it's about whether you have the freedom of speech it's about so many things so so freedom safety freedom of choice it's also about anti corruption so there are many things to look at but i think what we should look at especially in the richest countries in the most wealthy countries and in the countries like both canada and Denmark that do really well in the rankings is mental health this is where we have an issue and we need to look at young people because younger people as you said on earlier younger people are doing worse than they were previously and this is really a worrying trend
0: mm, that's really a bothering statistic about how the Uh, Younger people are are being worse off, even though the countries are thriving economically. So you're right. Each country that is doing well or not doing well, they should really focus on the most vulnerable or the most suffering uh, uh, portion of their population.
1: Yeah. And they should look at the tendencies because normally you'd find that the elderly would be the least happy. I mean, the oldest people simply. And this is mainly due to loneliness. So this is definitely a focus area as well. But I think it's really necessary to look at young people because it's really a worrying trend that young people who used to be very happy when we measured happiness are now reporting to be less happy than they were. and, And the trend is just going downwards.
0: Yeah, uh, that's really something to keep in mind, because also in rich countries, it seems like the country overall is doing really well, but you still have these crises. Like, for example, in Canada, we have the opioid crisis. Same thing with the United States. And it's uh, really troubling to think about it because when people think of Canada or the United States, they think of this great and thriving place, uh, but they don't see the people that are left behind, essentially. Exactly.
1: You need to look, as you said yourself, you need to look at the most vulnerable groups and the trends in society who are doing better than they were before and who who are doing worse.
0: So I usually like ending on a very positive note (laughs) (laughs) so sorry about that no no uh, i'll add a question in there (laughs) i'll add a question right now um Are you hopeful for the future since there are uh, the Happiness Research Institute, the UN ordered the release of World Happiness Reports, so we are becoming more and more aware. The governments are becoming more and more aware of happiness in their countries.
1: Yeah, I am hopeful for the future. I think it, it makes complete sense to focus on happiness, well-being, life satisfaction more and more the wealthier we get. Of course, it's worrying that global happiness is falling, but exactly because both the OECD, the UN, the World Economic Forum, they're all focusing now on measuring happiness and taking happiness much more seriously. And therefore, I'm hopeful. Yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) That's perfect. That's a better note to end on. Oh, actually, before I let you go, you traveled quite a bit. What is your happiest country?
1: Oh, that's that's a good question. Nobody ever asked me that. Um, <laughs> but I can, I can I can easily answer that actually because what springs to mind is if you measure effectively effective happiness, I'd say Lebanon. Oh yeah. And if you ask me about life satisfaction, I'd say Denmark.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> they have that's so r- much fun in Lebanon, and there's so much they live so much in the heat of the moment. But I mean, generally it's a really tough place to live and it's a really tough place to grow up and it's much easier in Denmark but they they just have a blast anyway
0: (laughs) yeah that's a really interesting take uh thank you so much Anna pleasure likewise yeah Uh, okay
1: just let us know if you want if you want something more later on or if you want to know about what happened in the uh in the social media study we're doing, just get in contact again. As I said, in June, we'll be much wiser. The report for the Nordic Council of Ministers coming out then.
0: Yeah, I'll hold you up to that offer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're welcome.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you.
1: Okay, so have fun and good luck with everything. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. Bye.
0: So I just wanted to share some thoughts regarding the things we discussed in the interview. And the first thing I want to talk about is the definition of happiness. Going into the interview... I had this definition of happiness that is focused on the effective measure only. My definition of happiness would be, oh, it's the emotions that we feel on a daily basis. It's uh, how we react to events in our lives. But then after doing some research and after talking to Anna, obviously, I realized how important the cognitive dimension of happiness is and why it really uh, needs to become part of public debate or Happiness in general needs to become part of public debate because if we talk about cognitive happiness or the life satisfaction of the being, it directly relates to public policy. So, if you look at the six factors that are used by the World Happiness Report to explain why some countries rank the way they do in the World Happiness Report, you will see how closely they tie in with public policy or how the government or the country is running. The six factors are GDP, life expectancy, generosity, social support, freedom, and corruption. GDP is obvious. It relates to the country's economy. But if we try to dissect the other uh, factors, for example, life expectancy, it directly correlates to health care within a country, what the people eat, and their understanding of nutrition and the education that they get regarding the nutritional values of some food over others, and the availability of food as well, which directly correlates, again, to the economy and the income of the people earning within a country. Now, if we move on to the next thing, which is generosity, although most people will not think of this as something that can be changed by public policy, I found this really interesting paper that talks about how in communities with high income inequality, people with high incomes feel less eager to be generous and contribute to less fortunate people within the community, probably because they feel out of touch and they feel like they're not part of that community. Social support, uh, you can relate that to social welfare. The fact that people feel that they will be supported by the government or the community if they go through a rough patch in their life for example losing their job or falling ill these are things that really change people's perspective on life and feeling that feeling certain and reassured that everything is going to be okay in the long run is something that can be directly affected by public policy now if we analyze freedom and corruption needless to say how these things come in together and in countries that thrive on oppressing their people you will see how unhappy and how low they rank in the world happiness report because people feel like life Or the outcome of their lives is out of their hand. They feel like they have no choice in choosing their environment uh, and how they go about living their lives. And finally, to talk about the eudaimonic uh, dimension of happiness and how that correlates to people feeling like they have a meaning in their life. This can be fostered by three main things that I can think of off the top of my head, which is religion. Which really dives deep into giving you an explanation as to why you are on earth. What are you doing? But if that's not something that gives you this reassurance, you can look at a sense of community, uh, love through family, people that you care about and they care about you. And of course, uh, a feeling of satisfaction at work, feeling like your work is actually impacting someone. Anyway, um, I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. This is one of my favorite interviews. I've learned a lot from it. I look forward to hearing some of your feedback. Please go and engage on the Facebook page. We are putting out polls. We are putting out questions. And people are really interacting with them. So it will be fun to see what people think. And uh, maybe share my own opinions with with you guys. And uh, go on iTunes. Give us a good review. And if you enjoyed this, definitely go and share it with your friends. It would mean a lot to me. And thank you for listening.